0: We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still
1: felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations
0: about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something
1: meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast.
0: In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and an inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur.
1: We also believe that what you focus on grows, so pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers?
0: We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours
1: that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month.
0: And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshi.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Angie spoke podcast. Today's guest is Nancy Giordano, who is a strategic futurist, global keynote speaker, corporate strategist and gatherer with the drive to help enterprise organizations and visionary leaders transform to meet the escalating expectations ahead. Nancy is recognized as one of the world's top female futurists and is the co-founder of the Fem Futurist Society. She is concerned about applying an outdated industrial approach to an exponential 21st century world. She is launching her first book, Leadering, The Ways Visionary Leaders Play Bigger. Her book defines and encourages the caring, audacious mindset, we need to build the safe, inclusive, and thriving future that we all want. So we had An amazing conversation with Nancy. As you can imagine, this is right up Jenny's alley. Let's listen now to Nancy Giordano. All right. Well, welcome, Nancy, to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. Me too. Hi Nancy and welcome. So we were just chatting uh, before we got going and I'm just going to let all the listeners know that this is probably more of a conversation between Jenny and Nancy because it's all going to be about vision and futurists and it's just like not my thing. My brain just doesn't work that way. So I'm going to start off with a super simple question for you. You describe yourself as a strategist futurist. Can you just tell me what that means and how on earth do you become one of those?
2: Well, I get that question often, actually, and I think it's just insatiable curiosity. It was the best way for me to be able to channel um, this this need I have to constantly learn and understand how things fit together and understand the context in which they are, and when you realize how fast things are changing, uh, and you naturally become a futurist. In fairness, we will all be futurists, whether we want to be or not, and the joy of being a strategic futurist is that you can then help build it. It's not just coming at you. It's not just something that you have to react to. It's something that you can actively shape and build, and so I help organizations and teams and Uh, institutions and industries think through the contribution that they want to make into the future.
0: How do you get paid to do that?
2: Well, again, I I started in advertising and then I watched that career completely change as digitization came in and really shifted that industry quite dramatically. And then I got much more interested in brands and understanding how brands made choices in such a diverse landscape and then realized that what we really care about is the values of a brand, right? We don't want them just to understand us. We want to understand them and the choices that they are making. And so I worked with companies to um, become more value-centric uh, prior to 2007. And then in 2007, the whole world changed technologically. In 2008, we had a recession. In 2009, everyone came back and tried to build with the old operating system, and it didn't work. And so because I had a perspective on how things had shifted and was able to think kind of more um, I guess, lateral way, right? I understood like demographic changes and technology changes and lifestyle changes. And just because again, I'm like weirdly curious. I was trying to figure out like what is happening and how do I make sense of it? And I was able to build these maps that helped other people make sense of it. So I was asked to do a lot of consulting work. And what we found is that many organizations were not able to absorb and respond to new information very easily. So I went back and said, again, why? Like what is getting in the way? Like I can talk all about the things that are gonna happen, but if you can't hear me or you don't believe me, then how do I get over that? And at some point, I um, got frustrated enough to uh, decide maybe I don't need to keep saving all the old organizations. I want to go build the new ones. And so I helped uh, build an artificial intelligence company. I, built, I started TEDx and ran a bunch of TEDx events. I built a conference on the seven most disruptive technologies and met the people who are literally building the future, you know, the technologists and the designers and the engineers and the entrepreneurs and the scientists. And you're like, oh, my God, we're so unprepared. And so I've just been really focused on that. And so because I have a perspective on that, I get invited to share that a lot. And I was teasing a friend yesterday that I think I was born to have conversations on how I think the world should run.
1: <laughs> I seem to be very comfortable in that space. So Nancy, I'm curious, what timescale are you referring to when you talk about being a futurist? Like, are we talking two years into the future, 20 years, 200 years? Like, where is your area of focus? Yes. Yeah,
2: a really really insightful question and i would argue from today up to 50 years from now we literally did a project with a client who asked us to think about the world 50 years from now and we thought about how all this is going to change every single industry so i have a perspective on what you know how healthcare is going to completely evolve over the next 50 years but it really starts with how we believe and what we do today so i'm very focused on our belief systems right now our micro actions right now in order to, because if you think about it, if you just change how you think and or you change how you behave just a teenyest little bit right now it has a giant trajectory Input when you head to the future, so uh, it's very connected across time.
1: Yeah, I, I totally get that. so having I have a background in scenario planning and and future thinking in the environmental realm. When I was starting upon my journey of understanding this way of thinking, I was really taken by the fact that, um, at least from my own research, that a lot of this thinking was really originating in the military. Like that's where a lot of strategic future thinking was coming. And then it got adopted by really big businesses like oil companies and then has sort of filtered down to the rest of society. And my question for you is, you, you made a comment that you thought it wasn't the older institutions that should, should be, I guess, uniquely doing no, this no, work. No. Not,
2: right. no, I think what I said is I got frustrated trying to save all the old companies. And save the old to companies. Go build the new ones. Yeah, and yeah. And then I've come back full circle.
1: Okay, so now but, do, you, do you see, like, where do you see this work? I guess that's the question. Being most impactful.
2: Um, I really do think it is across all of it. I mean, I think that, you know, I I do still have a big heart for business and big business. I've always built part of big brands and big organizations and iconic institutions. I have, I want them to survive, but they have to shift and change because there is so much that is going to be transformative as these new technologies and cultural shifts happen that I, if you can't, like, I don't think every business on the planet or every institution should be saved if you can't evolve Thing, you don't get to stick around. It was funny. I did a talk years ago for a really huge uh, retailer, one of the second largest retailers in the world, and I had a slide that said, "Brand survival is not guaranteed." And they all took a photo of that slide. <laughs> and I thought that's the least insightful <laughs> thing on this like entire talk I'm giving you. Like, is that really surprising to you? That's funny. Uh, but the fact is, there isn't. You know, we are not um, destined to be here for another fifty or hundred years if we don't stay relevant. We're not here for another five or ten years if we don't stay relevant. So I think any organization, we talk a lot about that our work is for visionary leaders who want to play bigger. And the way we finally decided that is because when people already are curious about the future, whether you're a CEO or C-suite person or someone with enough insight to say something is shifting and changing and I want my organization to be more in touch with it, we're the perfect people. For that because we can come and turn the lights on historically um that was a very small percentage of the business population i would argue it's, a, it's growing to become a very big portion of the business population i just sent, re-sent a linkedin post from the chairman of siemens and big shipping container maersk talking about a paper he just wrote for davos that we need to move from polarization to collaboration that's exactly it right so when you have the chairman of a three hundred eighty thousand employment company or they you know have such a large team Thinking that way, we're heading in the right direction. So now I have a lot more faith that I think that every organization has the capacity to move in this direction if they want to. And we need them. I mean, we, we want the whole constellation, right? I think business has a really important role in innovation and in um, commercializing ideas.
0: Do you think that part of this is like, the, like, when you say that, the world is changing so fast. And I think that hasn't been the case historically for many, many years, right? It's just the last... I don't know, what, 10, the people that you work with must be so much more open to this work because they're seeing this like in real time, this changing, like even the things that are happening at Facebook.
2: Um, some are and some aren't. I mean, there's definitely still an arc across this, you know, and, uh, you know, for the scenario planners, again, you have more academic background around it, Jenny, than I do. But you know, there was a study that came out of USC School of Social Work many years ago, that from a new idea being considered, conceived and vetted, for it to be fully accepted and adopted by the field was 17 years. And that's social work, right? That's our livelihood. That's like the most personal, most intimate thing that you would want innovation to be driven faster and maybe able to distribute it more quickly. And so it just takes time for this. And so we still see an arc. And even the ones that are at the front end, of what we would call the liminal gap, this big shift between the old way things happen and the new way things are happening, are still in constant evolution. It's not like you finally get to the other side and you're safe. It's It is really about building capacity for constant innovation and experimentation, being able to sense and respond in real time. So that's sort of the difference between the scenario planning that Shell and so many of the government uh, entities did is they really looked at these long horizons and said, what will be the trajectories and the synthesis of all these different factors that we're seeing? And and it could play out one, two, or three ways. And we have to decide where we want to place bets. And for things like the future of work, and the future of working that's a really important thing for us to be doing we really really need to be thinking about that in a much more expansive way but i think on day-to-day we just need to be thinking about it in less of like what what is our north star what are we guided to and how do we move away from an old prescribed playbook that told us we're supposed to be driving toward efficiency and growth and move instead to a set of practices and that's why i love the synergy with yoga work that you do because we talk a lot about this is developing a set of business practices a thinking a mindset that allows you to, ma- to navigate with a compass and a North star.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. That's such a helpful way to frame it because it's not about an end goal. It's about the process. And it gets you confidence,
2: right? You, if, you ha- if you know how to read a compass or use a compass and you have the North star, then you aren't lost, right? And then you feel as though you can make it safely through any terrain that you are encountering. And I think it's that confidence that we need to reinstill in business leaders.
1: So I have a question for you about the role of ethics. Like what role do, do ethicists play in these bigger companies and in teams of people that are, are working with futurists like yourself?
2: Well, I would hope that it's not just a role inside a company, right? We hope it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental capacity and practice inside every person. And so there's a, an, an ethicist contribution, but in the more fundamental way, we just talked about if you put humans at the center and you design for the well being of humans, you make good decisions, right? If you're not putting humans at the center, um, you're putting either you know, profitability at the center or you're putting growth at the center or you're putting a competitive spin on it, then you don't make good decisions. And so what we really do is try and help remind people that we are all in a, you know, on the planet together um, and that North Star really matters. What is your purpose? Singularity University talks about a massive transformative purpose. And if you have that, that you actually are really guided, not just by courage, but also by strong ethical and responsible behavior. And I feel really passionate about that as we move again into an era of artificial intelligence and so much data capture and an ability to know more about us than we know about ourselves. So we have to take that responsibility really seriously.
1: Nancy, what role do you believe we have to future generations?
2: This big shift that I talk about is from this mindset called leadership, which is a noun uh, to this verb called leadering. And one of the really big fundamental parts of that, instead of thinking about short-term growth, which is month over month or quarter after quarter, we really are thinking about this and creating sustainable value over long term. So that's not just over decades, that's actually over generations. It's really thinking about the legacy that we are you know, preparing our kids for or also inviting them to be a part of now. Someone asked me yesterday what advice I would give to a 20-something. And I'm like, did anybody see the inaugural poet you know, I want to ask her a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> so I think that the reality is there's a lot more that we can learn with each other and help build together. And so I think that we need to get out of this mindset that we're building for the young and really empower them to be part of the design process of their future.
0: So when you talk about that, when you when you are talking with CEOs or C-suite um, about these concepts and you're like, we can't worry so much about product efficiency, we've got to think about legacy and long term and so on is their argument always back to you, but I have to make money this year to pay my staff or to pay all the bills. Like I have to take that into consideration.
2: Of course. And I I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, we just are building for this, you know, utopian future that our children will be able to, inherit, I really do think about it. But I just, the difference is that I believe that way of thinking allows you to be much more productive and much more successful in the short term. It's both. Well, it drives short term, right? Because I have that vision, I make the decisions today that will ensure that I stay relevant and ensure that I stay trustworthy, to ensure that I bring talent to me and I bring customers to me and I bring ecosystem partners to me. If I don't think that way, I don't have all the tools that I need to be able to be successful in the short term. Right, so with that vision, we are actually able to draw the resources that we need to be able to be productive right now.
0: And do you have some advice for those that aren't Nestle or whatever playing on the international scale? Like for for clients like ours who are you know solopreneurs or small you know businesses, is it a matter of like? laying out the company's values and kind of leading their team based on the values as the North Star? Like, how do you advise a smaller company to adopt this kind of thinking?
2: You know, I have, when I talk again about moving from a playbook to a compass, here's my compass. It's two questions. What does the future need and expect of us? Like, do we understand what the future needs and expects? Have we spent time exploring that and thinking about that and talking to others about that? And we can see the writing on the wall. And then the second is then have we, reflected and contemplated what we're in each in a unique position to create and contribute to that future. And that's really it. And that's as an individual, that's as a team, that's as an organization, that's as an industry. I would argue increasingly it's as a society or as a nation, right? I just read a report about this, uh, a big strategic report about how Europe is trying to figure out how it plays in the international tech scene. So each of us from wherever space we are have a place that we can contribute and we can create toward the future that we want to build. So if we know, again, that um, you know inclusiveness, and for me, one of the, so the things that I focus on are things like if we're heading into what I call a productivity revolution, where you have, again, solutions that are being advanced very quickly with artificial intelligence, with robotics, with bioengineering, all these kinds of things that we couldn't do before that we can do much faster and more efficiently now. How do we distribute that productivity in a more equitable way? It's a huge question. We already have income inequality and wealth inequality. We're going to have Um, certainly technological displacement, if not completely dislocation. How do we think about that? So I know the future needs and expects us to have some perspective on that. I see a booming mental health crisis right now, or I should say looming, I don't wanna say booming, but unfortunately a looming mental health crisis is going to get larger and larger, and particularly again with youth. I'm very focused on the future needs and expects us to take care of that now, so it doesn't turn into a trauma-based society. So I think a lot about what are the things that either frighten me or frustrate me that I can build a solution for. And I'm very, very focused on that. And then I feel empowered, right? I feel a sense of agency. I don't feel like I'm a victim to this world that's coming toward me. So I think just having people have that sense of um, responsibility, like we all have a place to play in this, no matter if we're, you know, a student um, or an artist or a solopreneur or, you know, the CEO of a big corporation.
1: So I'm really curious about mentally how you divide what an individual can do on their own. Cause we, we work a lot with um, being agents of change and thinking about creating um, a space for change makers within our community and, and a space for ourselves to do that work. We're constantly gauging, what do I have in my power to change and what can I start on my own or with my team versus where do the institutions and external changes need to happen? And so how, uh, you know, with, with someone, like you, who does this work at scale, how, how do you delineate between those things? And then where do you, where do you put the things that are outside of an individual's capacity to change? Yeah, I probably don't see it from
2: the same perspective that most people do, because I don't see that boundary quite as clearly. Uh, What what I talk a lot about is that we often come to these conversations as a professional, like how can I do my work better today? But We're actually humans that are all going through this, and we're increasingly being uh, considered as members of society. Like That that question is becoming more and more visible to us, and the boundaries between those are becoming much more porous. So a decision that I make at one level actually escalates or ripples through the other two, uh, so, again, who I am as a human, this idea of self awareness is huge. Like, we talk about one of the capacities for the future, the ability to be able to be challenged and be able to learn and to be able to work with people who are so different than we are is a really critical capacity. And it starts as like deeply in of me feeling a sense of self worth, right? So, that work is very, very so. If everybody just did that work, we'd already have a completely different society. So, I don't think, again, that that work doesn't ripple out to the biggest possible you know, impact that it can make. Because if you approach that, no matter what your job is or your role is with that sense of wholeheartedness for lack of a more sophisticated business word uh, that I think it really is, it, you make decisions again every day about that, right? There are, there are tons of micro decisions that are made every day about how to invest time, resources and money. And they come from an orientation of some sort or another that have forever ripple effects. And so I guess, again, I I don't really see. So so yes, I can be inside an organization. I can get frustrated that we don't have, you know, we're not thinking about sustainability the way that I would like us to think about sustainability. But with my team, I can make sure that we are using all the resources that we possibly can to think about that, right? We worked, again, this actually is with Nestle, but when we were working with Nestle and they would bring in these big snacks to every meeting, you know, all the pre-cut fruit and all the da-da-da, and we would eat a third of it. And, you know, the rest of it was all going to get trashed. I'm like, can we have whole fruit? that gets brought into the meetings. If someone wants a banana, have a banana. If Someone wants an apple, have an apple. But if we don't use it, then it gets you know, reused in a way that doesn't all get dumped. I mean, it's like the simplest, tiniest little micro thing, but it helped them rethink what does sustainability look like on a day-to-day basis, right? So it's amazing the impact you can have just by questioning a, a current practice and saying, is there a way that we can do it better, depending, again, on what the lens is that we're looking at it through.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking about, too, though, Sandy was talking about responsibility as a C-suite member or a CEO to think about profitability, especially if you're a publicly traded company and you have responsibility to your shareholders. And so um, like the ability though, to switch that, I mean, that's federal law in the United States, right? Like there there, there are certain legal shifts. I mean, I think I bring my experience as an attorney to this as well, because I can see like places where there are institutional barriers that if we can identify and pinpoint, and that's a really big one and unlikely to change, but there are lots of other smaller things like tiny definitions in statutes that could have, like you're saying with this fruit example, they're like really disproportionate ripple effects. If like we had the ability and capacity to identify where those things are.
2: Yeah, but we're watching that stuff shift right now. So on Unilever again, is a phenomenal example, when Paul Pullman was CEO of Unilever, he suspended quarterly reporting and said, we're a long-term play, we're not a short-term play that change is a big deal. Like if the market's describing this, we have an opportunity to actually um, work, you know, which should change the way that that's structured. You know, so much of this is systems thinking that needs to be restructured. And we always go back to, well, that's what it is. I'm like, well, there's a way to be able to change what that is and signal to the market that we're actually playing the game differently, right? So I, I, and I also, again, I will say short-term thinking is one of the biggest killers to long-term success. So there's a study that we talk about in the book that I think Duke did that asked executives if they could make an investment in their business now that they know would have a short term profitability hit, but long term would position the business for success. 80% of the respondents said they would not do it. Mm -hmm. Think about that for long term success, like it just doesn't work. So again, so we have systems that incentivize CEOs to make very short term decisions because it impacts their bottom line. Right. The equity that they get in the company and they're only going to be around for two years and they're going to make short term decisions. So we have to really look at the really big systems. Somebody asked me about political change and I'm like, you know, I would start with like campaign finance reform. It's like how money flows is a really big part of how these systems are distorted. And so how do we fix those things? So, yeah, can I say that I'm, you know, right now I'm responsible for campaign finance reform? No, but I will say I'm also championing technologies that will put pressure on these kinds of old systems so that somehow they will have to change and they will break. So I can, from my own, and that's where the power of entrepreneurs are. They can come up with these ideas, particularly in such a a place where technology becomes more and more accessible. Right. I have friends who are building with cryptocurrencies and they're building with AI and they're building with these things that allow us to completely restructure and think about even something as 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 fundamental, regulated and sophisticated as finance. I don't think that there's all that, you know, we're we're. Working with a pharmaceutical company about something right now, we keep hearing so much about regulation. I'm like, you know what? You can go look at limited insurance and say two guys who looked at an insurance industry and said, there is so much bloat in there. We could figure out this in so much better ways. And they completely built a, a different kind of insurance company that now is you know, growing very fast and growing into Europe and um, really redefining what insurance looks like in the 21st century. Every one of these things is up for redesign.
0: You mentioned your book, so we definitely want to hear about it. So it's called Leadering. Do you want to tell us um, why you wrote the book, what it's about? Yeah, so
2: it's Leadering, the Ways Visionary Leaders Play Bigger, because I think it's really to answer so many of the questions that you guys are intuitively asking, which is how do we do this, right? We all understand why we want to build a better next. We see the breakdowns around us. We don't want to be part of continuing the breakdowns, whether they're ecological, environmental, mental, physical, social. We don't want to be part of perpetuating that, right? But I will also say that we also have a second portion of it, which is that we're heading into what I described as a productivity revolution. When you have the convergence of these exponentially powerful and potent technologies, it will shape and redesign everything. So how do we do it in a way that doesn't harm people? How do we do it in a way that we feel really like we can release the crackle and feel excited about what these things can do in terms of personalized education, in terms of predicting earthquakes, in terms of autonomous vehicles, in terms of being able to manufacture things on demand and make it more and more affordable and more accessible to people. I think about the impact of vertical farming and the the role that AI robotics are playing in being able to create plant-based foods. I mean, it's just extraordinary what is possible. We can 3D print a house for $10,000. People like that wasn't possible you know, until very recently. So that's a part that I think is really exciting. So the question is, how do we wrap our heads around embracing that and building the future that we want to see? And what I've found again in my work is that there's this big mindset hurdle that if you measure everything against the way business was supposed to be done, and it's what I call leadership again, right? The noun that is hierarchical and static and closed for very intentional reasons which was to root out variability, to ensure safety, to efficiently be able to scale so that we could have consistent short-term growth. It's 100% what it was built to do. And it did it very effectively in the 20th century until we hit all these, you know, uh, both breakdowns and we hit an environment where we need to be in constant innovation experimentation. That model does not hold up. So what is a new model or a new way of thinking, a mindset that allows us, again, to be able to um, build the capacity in a dynamic environment for constant innovation, constant experimentation, and changes the the goalpost from short-term growth to long-term value. So the book just explains exactly how to do that, <laughs> and it gives lots and lots of case studies and lots of statistics. Um, my father was teasing that it reads like a textbook, even though it's really it's written very first person, which is a kind of a bold <laughs> move as a woman to do is to run in and sit here and say, "Here's how I think the you know the world should run." Um, but I've just seen a lot of examples. I've been very, very, very fortunate. To be around a lot of people who have been trying to navigate change. And I've seen the ones who've done it successfully, and the ones who've gotten in their own way. And so I'm just trying to to, um, close that gap. Because I think it's very frustrating when you've got a bunch of potential that's not being utilized.
0: What this is making me think about is like, I love your reference and uh, to mindset and like how we are thinking it's as if, and and even more so for, for women, I believe that we have been programmed. It's like open source core code. Someone has been in there like, you shall be a good girl. You shall do things this way. Businesses are this way. Leadership means this. This work that you're doing is like, we need to bring every single subconscious thought that we think this is the way it is, has been and has to be. And like, like, do we want it? Do we want to think like that? Is there a better way, a challenge to all of us to like, really, is that what you want to think? Are you okay with that? Why do you like that? Do you want, do you want to keep it or do you want a new thought? Just expand on that. I
2: would say it's an invitation, I think, to bring our whole heart into the work that we do. Right. And again, if you look at Gallup studies that have shown over the last 10, 20, probably longer years, 20 to 30% of us are fully engaged in our work. 70 to 80% of people constantly report that they're not really engaged in their work. Why are we trying to hold on to a system in which people aren't bringing their creativity and bringing their innovation and bringing their passion and bringing their curiosity to work? That's what we want, right? So it's an invitation to really release that and make that possible. And so one of the things I talk about is we're moving from a, an orientation toward, uh, from winning to an orientation of caring. Right. If I can take all of these resources and I can store them in a way in which I really take good care of people, isn't that the most motivating work we could possibly do? And that's across every industry and every domain that is not just for health food, you know, uh, entrepreneurs or uh, yoga studios or, um, you know, whatever, you know, the, the head spaces of the world. This is for everybody. And we're seeing that now. Um, become more and more part of the mandate. So back to the fiduciary thing and the legal structures, what we saw, right, in, 19, in 2019 is when 191 CEOs from the business Roundtable got together and said, hey, we actually need to shift our orientation from stakeholder capitalism, I'm sorry, from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. That was a big shift right there, right? Because stakeholders include employees, they include community, they include partners, they include um, everyone, including the investor, So what we're seeing is I think the shift to looking at how we take better care and hold each other better. That's a huge invitation. To me, it's really exciting.
1: What would you say, Nancy, to someone who says, okay, that's wonderful, but this is maybe too little, too late. What is your response to that?
2: Well, all we've got is today, right? We can't go back and fix yesterday as much as we would like to. So I do believe uh, that there's still plenty of of power left. I mean, again, if I believe that we're only 1% into what this future could look like, I think we got a long way to go and um, an extraordinary moment. I think the climate stability issue is a very, very big question, right? And that's why I call it climate stability. It's my way of, of feeling more confident about it when I call it that climate threat. I get you know completely overwhelmed. And certainly, if you talk to anyone under 25, this is the biggest issue that they're. Uh, Absolutely petrified about, and that we need to get our act together on. I guess for some reason there's enough of optimism in me to figure at some point we're going to wake up, and I do think technology is going to come and help save us. We're seeing uh, the huge advances in renewable energy. We're seeing the dec- you know the sort of peak oil and peak fossil because we now have batteries that are able to store the energy better. The costs are coming down. Like we're starting to think to make moves. The biggest threat we have is incumbent industries that are afraid to grow and are afraid to evolve. So if we can get incumbent industries to understand it, it's actually in their best interest to move in this direction, the same way we saw meat processors start to embrace plant-based proteins, that's the shift that needs to happen, is that we help incumbent industries figure out that they can win and by, by caring in this new world, right? They can be part of the solutions instead of holding on to the practices that have kept us in such dire straits.
1: Yeah, I think some people are going to have to die off before we have a total shift. And that but, might be, I mean, you know. But, but yeah, that, I like mean, that's where that maybe the 1% comes in and really makes sense, right? Like at some point. But what we're
2: seeing is even with some of the oldest and some of the most staunch um, entrenched players, uh, they actually also have children and grandchildren. And what we're seeing is they're actually opening up so much of their thinking through that portal. And that's a really powerful one. So appealing to them for what it is that they, because they're they're not just worried about whether or not there will be, you know, uh, climate stability. They're watching the, the really mental health breakdown in their families. You know, I did a podcast yesterday with someone who's got children the same ages as mine. He's got three of them. I said, how are they doing? He's like, two are doing great. One, not so great. Right. And that was what we hear almost after every single one of my conversations, people come up to me. I did a, a session on Saturday with my 20 year old son for a bunch of students in Costa Rica, middle and high school students, because one of the mothers came up to me after a big corporate keynote talk I gave to Clorox and said that her son, her 14 year old, is questioning why he should live. Right, guys, we had a giant breakdown when that's what's happening right now. So the narrative just needs to be more positive. The narrative needs to be that we actually have this tremendous opportunity to build the future that we want to build and that everyone has a role and an obligation and and a space in it, right? Even if you just want to open a shoe store, like one of the things I'm also really careful about is not to tell kids that they've got to save the planet from all the problems that we've created, right? If you want to open a shoe store, like open a shoe store, but think about what the materials are, the supply chain, how you're paying people, how you're distributing it, right? These are all thoughtful choices that you'll make even when you just own a shoe store, and if you make all this thoughtfully, you will contribute to making the planet a better place.
0: I used to own a shoe store. Don't open a shoe store. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was probably
0: one of my dreams. Like Lauren's Shoes in Chicago
2: is
1: like the coolest nope. place ever. No,
0: just go shopping yeah. for shoes, buy the shoes, but don't own the shoe store. Just trust me on this.
1: Okay. <laughs> this is like the most advice. perfect example you could have given because I was the little kid that was told <laughs> that it's up to you to save the planet and like literally made my life, life's work about that. And Sandy's the one that had the shoe store and we both sort of ended up in the same place, right? So it, it doesn't all matter so much in the end. <laughs> but I think both of that. I think that that's why you guys are the powerful team that you are though, right? It is that
2: shared orientation. There is a pragmatism. There is a real worldness. There is, I, I just want to go and like put my passion into action. If my passion is shoes, that rocks. But how do I do it in a way that's really thoughtful? Because I think we put too much pressure on youth Um, I was in an audience when my 24 year old son uh, was 14. So 10 years ago, we went to a TEDx youth event. And literally every single speaker spoke to the kids as in, you will save the world from poverty, and you will save the world from climate change, and you will save it from water, and you will save it from whatever. Holy crap. Like, what if I just want to invent a video game? You know, and so I feel like that's not fair to put that kind of pressure on them. But I do think they want all of us to be thinking about these considerations with the businesses and the resources that we have so that we can all work together to solve these problems, regardless of what industry we are in and what passion our uh, is uh, the way our passion is expressed uniquely, right? We want each person to bring their own thing to it. And that's why, again, I would just say that the 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 connection between the The yoga work, I know your work extends beyond that, but the idea of people understanding that there's a set of practices and there's a set of principles and there's a certain way in which we orient, whether it's our bodies or our mindset or our work is the thing that continues to expand. and, And I think will influence the work across everything that we do from higher education to finance, to energy production, to food production, to manufacturing of every kind, to, you know, being a dentist, I had a dentist who came up to me after one of my talks. So I spoke to hundreds of dentists across the country who are also wrestling with, by the way, whether or not they should invest in a three D printer and yada yada. Um, and one of them tells me he has uh, he's been practicing mindfulness for decades, and he has a mindfulness practice with the eight people in his practice. Four of them are really into it, four of them not so sure. But every day he has a meeting in the morning and a meeting in the afternoon in which they circle up and talk about the clients that are going to come in that day and how they're going to hold them. And I thought, damn, I'm even a dentist. Like rock on mm-hmm. with how you do your work. Yeah, you know for sure.
1: I, I think there's that's the beauty of having underrepresented people to coming into industries where they historically have been absent because it brings the kind of creative energy and different ways of thinking in, into those spaces and really can start to shift the way people live and work. So that's that's as a great as, example.
2: Yes, and so I would say yes. With the caveat that we also make room for dissent, mm-hmm. because when we just bring diverse folks together, but we expect them to still think mm-hmm. similarly, we've actually um, really choked the power mm-hmm. of what that diversity does. Yeah. And so sure. and the only way to be able to be in an environment where we're able to challenge each other's opinions is I go back to the work is very internal. And we know that if someone challenges us, it doesn't mean that I don't know my shit. and It doesn't mean that I, you know, um, have been doing it wrong all this time. And it doesn't, it just means that I'm open to another point of view and together we can triangulate to the right place to go. But it's amazing how many people resist um, a a diverse point of view because they feel as though somehow it calls them out.
1: Mm -hmm. Or it's a threat. It's just, it's threatening. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. This has been amazing. We ask every one of our guests to share a joy and a hustle. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now that you'd love to share and a tool that can help our listeners hustle in their careers or their business.
2: Um, Yeah, the joy thing is just so broad. I was talking about with my daughter. She's like, you should say your daughter. (laughs) <laughs> i was like, okay, I will stay my kids. You know, I really, really do love my kids. Uh, but I also say for me personally, I think that you asked a really a great question early on, which is how do I hold all this, right? There's a lot that's going on. And um, I have built a ritual, certainly during the pandemic, about the sunset. Uh, the sunset and I have become pretty tightly wound. And I have like, I leave schedule scheduled time. Like that's a half an hour, which I don't want to be bothered by anybody. Um, or don't make, you know, I schedule it, but it's a, um, you know, a place of gratitude where you still spend time thinking about all the people that, you, well, you, I, I, first is gratitude of all the things that are working well. Uh, it's a lot of love just as the sun starts to hit that horizon of all the people that I love. But then just as it goes over the edge, I ask the sun to take with me whatever it is that I'm holding that's negative. So if that day it's fear, take the fear over the horizon. If that day it's overwhelm, take it over the horizon, right? And so I'm just cleared of it. By the time the sun sets, uh, it has left me. And so that uh, restores me for the next day.
0: That's beautiful.
2: Yeah, it's been a sanity saver. Let me just say Mm -hmm. it's it's worked really well.
0: (laughs) And your hustle? Uh
2: Yeah, my hustle is just, I'm just a constant learner. I just literally take time to read every freaking thing. And so I think that really investing in your own curiosity is a really important part, whether your employer helps you do that or not. I've been really going out there talking to a lot about to companies about how we ensure that we build systems that invest uh, in people's curiosity. Uh, But if there's one book that you want to read other than mine, which will be out on Valentine's Day, which is a Valentine to the visionary and all of us, uh, it's called The Future is Faster Than You Think by Peter Diamandis and Steven Kotler about these technologies that are emerging and how they will change every industry,
0: like invest in learning. So it doesn't feel so scary.
1: That's great. Thank you so much for sharing those.
0: Cool. Well, so where you. can they get your book when it's out? Do they can, is there, are you pre-selling it?
2: I'm not pre-selling it. We're going to do the big old, like everybody let's all descend on Amazon the same darn day. Um, and so it does come out February 14th intentionally. Right. Um, we were laughing that we're, it was going to come out earlier. Everyone's going to go like, I am not a February 9th, Tuesday kind of girl. I am like a Sunday, <laughs> February 14th kind of girl. Yeah, that's right. Um, and okay, I think this goes back to, but that's not how business is done. I'm like, I don't really care if that's how business is done. Like, I just think that that's the day that I want everyone's, you know, heart and minds oriented toward the fact that we can um, all be visionaries, that this is not the work of just a few people on the planet. This is all of ours. Uh, and so it'll be available February 14th on Amazon um in whatever form you want it. I haven't recorded the audiobook yet, but it'll you know be an ebook and softcover and hardcover. And uh and we really do want to um, extend the conversation. You know, if you go to leadering.us, uh we'll hopefully be adding more and more content and start doing interviews with some of the people who really exhibit so many of the behaviors and, and uh, practices that are in the book and uh, we'll hopefully grow the conversation.
0: Um, yeah. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for the time you spent today. It's been really great and insightful conversation. So thank you, Nancy.
2: I appreciate it so, so very much. And I will say for all those who have that kind of work inside, it's taken me 10 years to write this book. Uh, Not because I didn't have the thinking, but because it takes courage to put it all out there that way and to build those systems of support that keep you going and know that you are not alone in the work that you do is really important. And this podcast is part of that. So I really appreciate the support.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free.